Verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Pretty good? That's good. That's good. Well, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Kevin. I'm the pastoral assistant uh, of youth here at Trinity. And this past year, we, um, our youth group, we walked through the book of James, taught through that. And if you've ever heard me give my testimony, you would know that James is very near and dear to me. I grew up at Trinity. I grew up in a Christian home, going to church and youth twice a week. I knew the Christian lingo. I knew the story of Jesus and his death and resurrection. And because of my context, I assumed I was a Christian. That might be a lot of our stories here this morning. But growing up into my middle school and high school years, what I wanted, what was always on the forefront of my mind, was not the things of God, but my selfish ambition, the things of self. All I wanted was to be liked. I just, I wanted the praise of others and to fit in with the cool kids. And I did whatever I could to fit in with the crowd. I treated others with contempt. I gave in to peer pressures. All while assuming a Christian identity because of my context. Went to church all the time, grew up in it. But 16 was a turning point for me. I was challenged by a leader out of winter camp to actually read the Bible for myself rather than just opening it up whenever I'm told to open it up at church. I finally read the Bible for myself and it was in James. And as I read James, I saw, I saw how a Christian was supposed to live out their faith and I realized that that was not me. I was challenged as I was reading with this idea that you can call yourself a Christian but not be a Christian. Especially when James says in our passage that we just read, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And so I was convicted. I had a choice to make. I had to pick one. Am I going to be true to my Christian identity and exalt God? Or am I going to continue to exalt myself? I cannot do both. I had to pick one, and that is what James is challenging us with this morning. James is the half-brother of Jesus, 
and his letter is the earliest New Testament writing we have. He is writing to various churches dispersed throughout Palestine. And the Christians that James is writing to, a couple of context points for the audience is they're going, one is they're going through uh, persecutions and trials. And James, he, he calls them to count it all joy when they face trials because the trials will produce steadfastness and the steadfastness will prepare them for the crown of life, for glory. Um, another context point, there seems to be tensions inside and outside of the church between the rich and the poor. The rich are oppressing the poor, and he, he calls them to show no partiality between rich and poor, but to live out, to love, to love everyone, and to live out the royal law of loving others, even caring for the orphans and the widows. Um, and, and last context point, lastly, there seems to be, and this one's going to drive home with this morning, there seems to be a nominal, lukewarm faith among these believers that James he has to teach them that they should not only hear the word, but they need to do the word, lest they be deceived. He tells them that faith without works is dead, meaning that, that true faith, it's active, and your true faith is proven by your works. And then in our passage, he teaches that we cannot have an intimate relationship with God while at the same time have friendship with the world and enjoy the sin that is in the world. So th these context points of James's audience is very relatable with our context today, right? Especially lukewarm faith. We see many examples of nominal faith among us in our Western individualistic society. And James shows us it's a type of faith that shows that it's no faith at all. So my big idea, if you're writing notes, is that God wants all of you, not just some of you. God wants all of you, not just some of you. Going right into my first point, we're going to zoom in on verses 1 to 5. First point, friendship with the world is enmity with God. So if we're, if we're looking at verses 1 to 5, apparently there seems to be fights among the people that James is writing to. There's fights and quarreling. We've all experienced getting into a fight or an argument with someone, right? We can relate. Maybe you fight often often with your spouse, or you fight often with your teenage kids, or you fight often with your parents, or you're always just nitpicking at each other with your coworkers or your classmates. You might, and, and there's some point along the road you might have asked yourself, why does my relationship with this person have so much fighting in it? What's going on? James asks them this question in verse 1. He asks them, what's causing the quarrels and the fights among you? What's, what's the deal? And he's a great, he's like a psychologist. He diagnosed their root problem behind the fighting by saying, is it not this? Here's the root problem. Your passions are at war within you. So there is fighting and war between them because there is fighting and war within them. A few verses back, if we look at chapter 3, verse 16, <clears throat> he says this. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So James, he calls selfish ambition a worldly wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. And I will argue that this selfish ambition is really the essence of sin. Selfish ambition desires not the things of God, but the things of self. Think about it. Like every sin we do, it's, it's directed towards pleasing self. 
It's selfish. If you are a Christian, you are made a new creation who now loves God. But as Christians who live in a fallen world, we're not yet perfect. We still have the desires of the flesh that wages war against the spirit. We have to be constantly fighting sin in this life and waging war against it because it's waging war against us. And this is my point with this. If, if we're not careful, the war that wages inside each and every one of us turns into wars made between each other. And that's why James, James's audience is having quarrels and fights with one another. They, their worldly passions are stirring up within them. And the thing about worldly passions is they're not rock-solid promises um, like the promises of God and the wisdom that God gives. Worldly passions you pursue, whether it's sex, money, being liked by people, adventure, fill in the blank, it's never guaranteed. You're not promised it. And even if you do happen to get it, it won't satisfy and it won't last. It will fade away and it will leave you wanting for more. That is what is happening with the Christians that James is writing to. They're not getting what they want, and so they're having bitter jealousy among each other. They're coveting each other's things. They're even hurting each other to get what they want. So, brothers and sisters, passions at war within you produces fighting and quarreling among you. So if there's some tension and quarreling between you and someone else over a situation, stop and examine your heart. Examine your motives for any selfish ambition you might have. Ask yourself the question, is there something in this situation where I'm prideful or I'm trying to gain something for myself? And most of the time, you're gonna find something. Most of the time, that might be the case. And most of the time, being in fights with people, I see a lot of, it's as simple as like you just trying to prove that you're right, right? You're just trying to win the medal of being right over a situation. Maybe you're always willing to die on every hill you stand on, and half the time you're bringing the dirt with you. So before you go to war with someone over something, think about what it is you're fighting over and what that's gonna do to the relationship. Value the relationship over your, keeping your pride even if you really think you're right this time, right? It takes a position of humility to do this. This is great advice that I've gotten for marriage. It's great advice for all relationships, especially um, between brothers and sisters in the church. I'm not saying to be passive over sin and over a sin problem that somebody might have. We need to stand for truth, stand for the glory of God. But fighting over selfish ambitions is not the same. It's not worth it. Evaluate your heart if you're in a quarrel and you'll probably find something. A big reason why there is so much fighting is because their prayer life is absent. Verse two says, you do not have because you do not ask. And this is a good time to stop and remind ourselves that we miss out so much on God's blessings because we do not pray for things. Prayer works and prayer is powerful. Do we, do we truly believe that God answers prayer? Or are we like the double-minded man in chapter one? We see this word double-minded a couple times in James. 
And the double-minded man in chapter 1 doesn't really believe that God is able to answer prayer, even in the middle of him praying to him. Do you truly believe, as 116 says, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights? He calls us to pray big and to pray the prayer of faith that God hears our prayers and he answers them in his wisdom, in his wisdom. But I also want to say with that is that confidence, this confidence in prayer, it must run parallel with praying rightly. I want to be careful with this. First John 5, 14 to 15 says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So there is a way to pray rightly and to pray wrongly. To pray rightly is to pray in such a way that is concerned for the glory of God and it's aligned with his will and word. And to pray wrongly is what James says in verse 3. You do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now me saying this, the last thing Listen, the last thing I want to do is to steer you away from prayer over the fear that you might pray wrongly. I want us to walk away this morning praying more than we ever have before. I want us to walk away knowing that God bids us to come to him in prayer. To know that prayer is the weapon to resist the devil. Um, To look at prayer as the very thing God uses to bring things about. We don't pray enough. We need more of it. And, but all I'm saying is that when you come to God in prayer, what is your heart posture when you approach God? Are we focused on the glory of God or the glory of self? Or are we the double-minded man from chapter one who asks for wisdom but doubts what he's asking for because he really just wants worldly passions? So pray Helpful ways to pray is to pray the word. Pray the Psalms. Pray because you love God and you want to know him more deeply. Pray because you love others and you want them to know Christ. Pray faithfully. This part's great. Knowing that the act of prayer even teaches us to desire the will of God and draws us near to him. Let's not be like the double-minded man in our prayers. God has given us prayer so that we can know him and glorify him. James's audience, however, is double-minded. In the midst of their quarreling, their prayer life is absent. They're not seeking God, but instead they're too busy chasing after their selfish ambitions. And James says in verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. After they're not able to get what, they're wa- what they want, they're quarreling and fighting is not getting them what they want, they now come to God in prayer asking for these worldly passions. This is where the problem goes deeper. This is where we see where their heart, what their heart wants and how they see God. God is not a cosmic butler that he's waiting at our service and we can just call on him and ask for whatever we want with no relationship to him. And at this point, James, he cannot contain himself any longer. At verse 4, he blows up, he bursts out, you adulterous people. And you're kind of like, whoa, why are you blowing up on on us, James? Why are you calling us adulterous people? 
Are there, are there spouses that are cheating on each other? What's going on? Why does he call them adulterous people? It's because they are being unfaithful to God. The Bible describes the picture of God as a husband and his people, his bride. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. You see, we were made by God to enjoy him forever, for him to be our greatest treasure and our greatest love that we share with no one else, an exclusive love, that, like a marriage, an exclusive, faithful love that is unique to that spouse, to that marriage. That's what we were to have with God. But time and time again, God's people would go after another lover by committing idolatry, loving other things, loving made-up gods more than him. Idolatry against God is adultery against God. They're going after the world and all the things in it as their other lover while claiming to be Christian. And James, he calls this friendship with the world as enmity with God because the world is contrary to God. It's the sinfulness that humanity makes up in the world. That's what he means by saying the world. When we claim to be Christians, we're claiming to be, as it were, in a marriage with God. And when we go after the world and make that our greatest treasure, whatever it is that's contrary to God, we're like a spouse running after another lover. And what makes it even worse is they are asking God, listen in, they're asking God to help facilitate them going after the world by praying to him for the worldly passions. It, it's like a husband, listen, it's like a husband asking his wife if she can stay home, watch the kids, clean the house, and then leave the house, go stay with your parents or friends, whoever, so that he can bring his mistress home for the night. He's asking her to facilitate his adultery. It's a disturbing image. I hope it grosses you out. But that is what we're doing to God, asking him in prayer if he can facilitate our worldly passions. He's jealous for us. That's what verse 5 says. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? As a husband is jealous for his wife's exclusive love, so is God jealous for his people. God is jealous for you, that which he created in you to be for himself alone. If you're a Christian, he is jealous for you because he bought you at the price of his son. He created us to enjoy him as our greatest treasure that you may be his and he may be yours. Not that he needs any of us to be complete, but because he is so glorious and he is so loving that he desires to overflow his glory by expressing and lavishing his love on us. He wants us to enjoy him because he is the only true and worthy one to have love and joy in. He knows what's good for us. So I want to ask you this morning, if you're sitting here and you're going about life claiming Christ while at the same time having friendship with the world, are, are you doing that this morning? There's no such thing as walking this fence claiming to love God and the things of God while at the same time loving the world and the sin in the world. Jesus says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other. You'll either be devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve 
God and money. And here, you cannot serve God and the world. So a little recap where James is at with his audience right now. James diagnosed the root of their fighting as their, it was their selfish ambition at war within them. And that selfish ambition was the evidence that they were having friendship with the world. Notice, and here's something interesting. If this is you, notice how friendship with the world is fighting with each other. The world is not a faithful friend. God is a faithful friend. So examine your heart if you are pursuing worldly passions and even using prayer to try to facilitate them. Friendship in the world is enmity with God. My big idea, he wants all of you, not just some of you. Because really, some of you is, is none of you for him. He wants all of you, not just some of you. Now, we all need to remember that the only people in this room right now are sinners in need of grace. And the hope is that whatever baggage we've come in here with, whether it's lust, love for money, love for self, and hurting others for the sake of our pride, Maybe you have committed adultery against your spouse. Whatever you've come in here with, the hope is that Christ is bigger. And Christ's forgiveness can lay on top of whatever you've done. And no matter what you've done, he is able to heal and deliver, and he gives more grace. And that's my second point. He gives more grace. So come to him. I'm going to hone in on verses 6 to 10. This time of confession, I enjoyed Lucas's invitation of time of confession. Um, if we've really sat down and thought about it, we'll realize we have no reason to be any, in any relationship with God. He has every right to cast us off because of our unfaithfulness. But I have really been loving verse 6 this week. He gives more grace. That's so good. This is good news for us reading verse 6. I don't think we, we need to meditate on this verse this week. I encourage you to do that. There is more grace in the Lord than there is sin in us. We've heard that quote quite often here. And then the songs we see, that we sing, do we believe them? Does it gladden our hearts when we sing, his grace is greater than all of our sin? Or when we sing, though we're going to sing this one next, though our sins are many, his mercy is more. Or the Matt Redman one, our shame was deeper than the sea, His grace goes deeper still. Do those songs, those lines, gladden our hearts like they should? We can sing all of these glorious truths. Here's why. Because the cross proves this overpowering grace. Christ came down from heaven to make this grace, this overpowering grace possible by living a sinless, perfect life by dying on the cross to satisfy the wrath that we deserve, and he paid for all of our sin, and he rose from the dead, defeating death. He accomplished all of this for you so that by faith in him, you may have this overpowering grace from God. We receive this grace by trusting in Christ, and this trust is an act of humility. We must humble ourselves by faith for this grace to apply. And James bases this off of what he says next, Proverbs 3.34. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
See, a proud heart, it's un, a proud heart is unwilling to honestly come to God for forgiveness. We've all sinned, but the difference between believer, non-believer is not our own righteousness. No one is righteous on their own merit. The difference is those who have recognized their sinfulness and have come to God for grace versus, who, versus those who don't see their sinfulness. And they don't see any need to come to God for grace. They try to instead impress God by their works. And the best example I can give is the parable that Jesus gives in Luke 18, right? Two, he says that two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector in the back. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, and on and on. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. Me and Josh were talking about my sermon for today, and, and he asked this great, this great question, what is your greatest need from heaven? The tax collector's need was from heaven. He says, God, I have nothing to offer you. I need your mercy. Have mercy on me. That's his greatest need from heaven was, his, was the Lord's mercy. Or is your greatest need of this earth? like what the Pharisee does, boasting in all of his works and sending it up to God in heaven. Or those who are in our passage quarreling and fighting to get what they want, sending their selfish requests to heaven. Is our greatest need that which is from heaven? When we see our sin drowning in the ocean of God's grace, we come to God with empty hands and contrite hearts ready to submit to him. When we behold the beauty of verse 6, we respond with verses 7 to 10. That's, we're going to spend the rest of our time in verses 7 to 10. It is the humble approach to God, turning away from sin and depending on his grace. This is what repentance is. And James calls us to submit to God in verse 7. This is the first one, first of many um, commands. Submit literally means to line up under. The word was used of soldiers under the authority of their commander to submit and follow the leadership of their ruler. To, so to be a Christian means to surrender all that you are, all that you have, all that you think and say to Jesus. In every part of your life, Jesus has the final word. It's not a Sunday thing, it's an everyday thing. All of our lives ought to be all for Jesus. James then says to resist the devil with the promise that when, he gives promises in here, that when you resist him, he will flee from you. And this word resist literally means to take your stand against. It's the exact opposite of the first command, to submit to God. And this shows that all people are either under the lordship of Christ or of Satan. 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And then Jesus told the Jews in John 8, you are of your father, the devil, because you do what he does. 
If we have been transferred to be under the lordship of Christ, we will do all we can to resist the devil with the promise that he will flee from us because Christ strengthens us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Left to ourselves, we are weak. We can't do anything on our own. We may feel despair fighting temptation because it just seems impossible. Some of you might be here this morning just feeling that burden, that weight. But with God, nothing is impossible. We need to remind ourselves that in Christ, Satan is a defeated foe. And we can have confidence resisting the devil, knowing he will flee. But how do we best resist the devil? That's a good question to ask. And I think it's the next thing we read. We do it by drawing near to God. Holiness and wickedness in, in terms of temptation cannot cohabitate. When temptations arise in our minds, we need to run to God in prayer and his word, and his word will overpower the temptations in our minds. Satan will flee from us as he fleed from Jesus in the wilderness as Jesus clung to God's word. We also draw near to God because we are promised that, I love this, he will draw near to us. Drawing near to God in his presence was only reserved for priests in the Old Testament, but now the veil is torn in Christ and we can confidently draw near to the throne of grace. It's good news, but as we draw near to God, it doesn't say that he kind of just passively stands by, but it says that he draw, draws near to us. He bids us to come to him. And he's like the father who sees the prodigal son far off coming home and he gets up and he runs to his son to embrace him. That's the heart of our heavenly father as we draw near to him. He runs to draw near to us. He bids us to come and as we come to him, James calls us to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. This language, again, of cleanse and purify is the same idea the Old Testament priests who cleanse themselves before entering into God's presence. But we know that we are cleansed by the blood of Christ. There's nothing we can do to add to Christ's work. We come to the cross now. But James, he is calling us as people who have a real relationship with God to put away our sin, to no longer be double-minded like the double-minded like double one in chapter 1. He then says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You read that and you might ask, why are we to turn our joy to gloom? Isn't joy like a Christian thing? Isn't that something we're supposed to have is joy? Why do we have to be gloomy? This isn't a joy. Here's the answer. This isn't a joy that takes pleasure in God. This is a, this is a fake joy. This is a joy and a laughter that takes pleasure in sin. James is calling us to no longer take pleasure in sin, but to be repentant over it. We are called to be mournful over our sin. We're called to take our sin seriously. And the, the thing is, we live in a world that takes sin lightly. We live in a world that jokes about sin at every corner. 
It, so it, it should grieve us when we're watching TV or watching a movie and we, we see jokes about sexual immorality. It should grieve us when we hear jokes about people. You're driving by and someone's joking about the homeless person. You may be in a conversation with peers or friends and they begin to gossip about somebody who's not in the circle and in the middle of the gossip, they're joking about them. That should grieve us. Taking pleasure and laughing over sin, we should mourn over it. But Jesus says, and so we're gloomy now, how do we have joy? The Christian life is we rejoice in the Lord always. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn over sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed means happy. When we turn our laughter and our joy over sinning into mourning, we will find true comfort and joy and laughter in God as we turn to him. Lastly, James says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This last command sums up the preceding commands, right? It takes humility to submit to God and draw near to him. It takes humility to be mournful over your sin in repentance. There's a quote um, by Augustine. Calvin quotes Augustine, and I'm quoting Calvin, who's quoting Augustine, in his Institutes over the topic of humility. He says this. I think it's up on the slide. He says, as this public speaker, when asked... What is the first precept in eloquence? So like as if you're asking a public speaker, what's the first thing to be eloquent? He answered delivery. Okay, what is the second? Delivery. Okay, what's the third? Delivery. So if you ask me in regard to the precepts of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. And I love what's followed up with that uh, quote from John Piper. He says, humility is the soil in which everything good in the Christian life grows. And if that soil goes away, everything good withers. Everything good we want to flourish and grow in the Christian life or in the church grows in the soil of humility. We need humility in every part of our lives. So if humility is the soil that everything good grows from, then it is clear, back to this idea of selfish ambition in chapter 3, verse 16, um, it's the opposite of humility. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Our selfish ambition and pride, it's the greatest thing in the way of God-exaltation. Jesus says, whoever exalts themselves will be humbled, and whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. And it's ironic because the very thing that those who exalt themselves are looking for is gain. But in the end, they're going to find none but be brought low in a shameful way. And the very thing that the humble are looking for is not gain for themselves, but they just want God and they want to be loved by him and they want to exalt him to deny themselves. And in the process of denying themselves and exalting him, they find gain. So let's turn to God in humility. Uh, I want to conclude by saying, I'm just thinking about you. I'm just thinking about Trinity this, re this week, and I'm so thankful to God for us. 
Like God has been good to us. And when I think of Trinity, I see a church that's marked by a deep love for God, a deep love to know him in Christ. I see Trinity marked by our love for one another and how we care for the body and how we love the poor and the orphans and the widows. I love it, thinking about us. I'm thankful to God for Trinity and the work he is doing in us. It's all by his grace. He gives us more grace. Hallelujah. And thinking about that and thinking about our text, I cannot help to see, however, that the burden of James, that James has in his letter over a faith that is dead and nominal, I cannot help but see his burden about that. It's almost as if he's saying over and over again, when are you going to take your faith seriously? When are you going to see that faith is active and it doesn't look like the rest of the world? A faith that looks like the rest of the world is not faith. It's just friendship with the world. It's, that's his burden. And it challenged me to evaluate my faith when I was 16. It challenged me to see, I saw that I was not serious about God or his word. It challenged me to see I wasn't serious about sin and mournful over it. I was teasing around with friendship with the world while claiming to be with God. I want to challenge you to evaluate your faith the same way I did. Are you serious for God and his word? Or is he just on the back burner um, of your life and the cares of this life are at the front? Maybe, here, maybe you're here convinced that you're doing just fine because you say the right lingo and you come to church twice a week, but every other day your faith has nothing to show for and there's no conviction for you to move forward. It's a burden and I want to humbly say and lovingly say with James that that just that looks like friendship with the world. The good news, and when we hear that, I, want, I can't say that up here without saying that the good news is that God gives more grace. He gives us more grace. He calls us to draw near to him. And he promises that he's going to run and draw near to us. We're able to do that because of what Christ has done by his death and resurrection, who Christ humbled himself for us. There's no cleaning up we have to do to humbly come to him, but we just come to him with open hands. So I, just, I challenge you to evaluate and to truly do that, maybe for, for the first time. I challenge you to come to him. Let's pray.